Well, Faith Reformed Church, good morning. It is so good to be with you this morning. It is so good to worship uh, and to, to come to the Lord together with you. And Sam, it is an honor and a privilege for me to be here uh, during your ordination and installation as well. As Pastor John mentioned, uh, this is the beginning of our Connections Week at Western Theological Seminary where faculty, staff, and students kind of spread across various churches in West Michigan and also around the country to just bring a word of greeting from Western Theological Seminary. I was wondering why my staff keep telling me, well, Felix, you've got to go to Fifth Reform. You've got to go to Fifth Reform. And I said, well, tell me more about Fifth Reform, what's going on. And they kept saying, just go. You have to be at Fifth Reformed. And it dawned on me this morning as Pastor John was telling me about the history of leadership development and the number of people that have been raised up and called up and received their call to ministry here at this church. That the reason they want to send me here is because you know what it means to raise up good pastors. You know what it means to raise up faithful Christians. And you can tell between right teaching and false teaching. So that's why they wanted me here. So because you can't just... BS your way through this church. Now, I have it easy. I'm just here from time to time. Hopefully, I get invited back. Sam, I feel the pressure that you have on your shoulders. Don't mess it up. In, in fact, Sam, I was wondering, um, you know, I was kind of surprised when I heard that the church uh, called you because I wasn't sure if they know about your long history of disciplinary action. That was a, no, just kidding, just kidding. Sam, I'm so glad that you are here. Uh, Sam uh, is a faithful, was a faithful student, but he was one of those unique students that didn't just focus on his studies, but he also integrated his studies with ministry. He was a faithful minister just across the uh, Oak Grove to Hope College athletes. He was someone who's so well-regarded uh, well with high reputation, both at Western Theological Seminary and, uh, and across Hope College. So Sam, congratulations, and Fifth Reformed Church, congratulations for extending this call uh, to Sam as well. Friend, you your Bible with you, would you turn with me to the text uh, for this morning? Uh, I want to read two passages, one from the Gospel of Matthew uh, and the second one from the book of First John. So the text from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 to, 30, to verse 40. Verse 34 to verse 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And from the book of 1 John, chapter 4, verses 19 to 21. We love because God first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we come before you 
to your throne room of grace this morning through the saving grace and power of your son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for the love that you have extended, demonstrated, and given to us. You love us, but we are still sinners. And we come today, Lord, bearing all of who we are. Open our eyes, incline our ears, orient our hearts towards you so that we may hear your voice. Be with us, Lord, this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Friends, as we enter into this fall season, we find ourselves in an incredibly chaotic time in the world. The conclusion of a 20-year war in Afghanistan, hurricanes making landfall, storms, climate change, earthquakes, political unrest, news that continue to fill the headlines. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and the effects that it is having, not only in our country, but also in our communities, in our churches, and even our families. Tensions that continue to rise in our country around masks, vaccines, issues of racial justice, and even tension among those who ascribe to different political parties. We are living in a time that is feeling increasingly fractured, polarized, tense, and divided. To bring it even closer to home, our life together as a people of God, a Gallup poll from earlier this year finds that public trust in pastors and clergy is hovering near an all-time low. In in 1937, when Gallup began tracking public trust in various sectors and occupations around the country, the percentage of the public that considered pastors to be trustworthy was over 60%. The number was still 64% in 2001 before it began a precipitous decline. This past year in 2021, it was merely at 39%. Nurses took home the top price at 89%. Doctors at 77%. Teachers at 75%. Sam, congratulations. You are pursuing a vocation there is nearly five times more trusted than car salespeople and a member of the Congress. <laughs> if you work at a car dealership or you're a member of the Congress here today, I'm so sorry for the perception that you have. But the lack of trust in Christian leaders is not only reflected in the leadership of the church, but it's also reflected in church membership. Gallup poll, again, have been tracking these things since 1937, and they found that in 1937, 73% of American public indicated that they belong to a church. Again, this number hovered around the low 60s and around the, uh, uh, the high 60s and the low 70s, registering at 70% in the year 2000. In this past year, in 2020, they found that only 47% of the household indicated that they belong to a church. A 23% decline in 20 years. We live in a time when it is not popular to be considered a follower of Jesus. So friends, this morning, I have a sincere plea for us. As you read this text, when the Pharisees asked Jesus, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? 
Jesus says, is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and to love your neighbors as yourself. So friends, as we continue to live in a time that is divided, that is polarized, that is fractured, in a time where it is not popular to be considered to be a follower of Jesus, let us continue to hang on to the greatest commandments that Jesus has given to us to love God and to love one another. To love God and to love one another. This passage in Matthew 22 It's a third in a series of attempts by the Pharisees and the Sadducees to confound Jesus. They wanted to trap him in his words, we are told. So this Pharisee, an expert in the law, came to Jesus to test them. And Jesus' reply is instructive for us today. He responded by citing a verse from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 5, a text from the Hebrew scriptures that would have undoubtedly been incredibly familiar to his hearers. No doubt that as Jesus responded, the words of Shema O Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ehad, filled their ears. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it's not a mistake that Jesus began his response by this text. Deuteronomy 6, chapter 4 began by reminding the Israelites that the call to love the Lord their God is a response to the God who has delivered them out of Egypt. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who has brought them out and will lead them into the promised land, the God who has brought them into the land of milk and honey, the God who has made Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. This is a covenant-making God. This is a covenant-keeping God. This is the God who provides. This is the good shepherd, the shalom-bearer, the peacemaker, the God of hosts, the everlasting God. Friends, The call to love our God is a response to the God who, while we were still sinners, before we were capable of doing anything to merit our salvation, before we are even capable of doing anything to love him, had first demonstrated his love for us by giving his one and only son, Jesus Christ to die for us on the cross, to atone for our sins so that we may be reconciled with the Father. This is the God who has drawn us near to him. This is the God who loves us, who loved us exceedingly, abundantly, and lavishly. This is the Lord, our God. And Jesus says, in light of that, love God. And love God how? With all of our heart all of our soul and with all of our mind. For our purposes today, I want to focus on the idea of loving God with all of our mind. I believe that in the Western context, the idea of loving our God with all of our heart and our soul, it's not too difficult for us to understand. After all, our contemporary conceptions of love involves the idea of giving someone our heart or to find our soulmate. What does it mean to love God with all of our mind. You see, when I was in college, I attended a public university. And in the English department, they offer a class called Bible as Literature. 
So as someone who was aspiring to go to seminary, I thought it would be good for me to learn as much as I can about scripture. So I took this class. And the professor was truly, genuinely amazing. He knew scripture more than many other Christians and many other pastors that I knew at the time. He knew scripture like the back of his hand. He was able to interpret and explicate and, and exposit the Old Testament and pointed how the Old Testament for, uh, foretold the arrival of the Messiah and how the promises of the Old Testament was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. He was able to weave Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation to the point where those of us who were, were Christians in the class ended up getting to a big, vigorous discussion trying to figure out whether or not this professor was himself a Christ follower. And by the end of the semester, we were convinced that no one, no one can know God's word as well as this professor could and not be a follower of Jesus. So finally on the very last semester, finally on the very last day of the semester, it was on a May, warm, sunny spring day. One of the students got the courage, summoned enough courage to ask the professor in front of 300 students. We're just wondering, do you consider yourself a Christian, and to our astonishment, he said, no. To him, the Bible, and why he loved the Bible so much was simply because it was great literary work. Friends, it might seem like this is not a true, genuine threat that we have to be concerned about, that you can know so much about God without knowing God. But as we see in this text today, isn't that what happened to the Pharisees? It's easy for us to just simply look at the Pharisees with a negative light, but these were a genuine follower of the God of Israel. They were convinced that if the people of Israel would live according to the teachings and the laws of the Old Testament, then as they are living in the promised land, as they are living under Roman rule, that if they were able to fulfill all the requirements and the law of the Old Testament, that God would, it, would come, the Messiah would come to establish his kingdom. They were so zealous and so passionate about making sure that the law of God is obeyed that they constructed additional laws to make sure that the original law wouldn't be broken. They were so zealous and so passionate about Yahweh. Yet when the Messiah himself came in the flesh, in person, in front of them, they sought to trap him in his words. It is possible to know about God and yet miss knowing God. It is possible for us as brothers and sisters in Christ to know the scripture, to sing with passion in worship, to know the catechism and the confessions, to string together the right words of prayer, to stand in front of a church Sunday after Sunday, to attend a school as, as fine as Western Theological Seminary, indeed to serve as the president of a seminary. It is possible 
for us to go down the list of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to satisfy the characteristics of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, yet miss knowing Jesus himself. So friends, it's no wonder then that Jesus tells us that the key, the greatest commandment, is not simply to know God, but to love God. Love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, but to love God. To love God with all of who we are. Herman Bavink, the Dutch theologian, um, said it this way. Speaking of the prophets and the apostles, he said, the prophets and apostles and the saints generally who appear before us in the Old and New Testament and later in the Church of Christ did not sit and philosophize about God in abstracted concepts, but rather confess what God meant to them and what they owed him in all the circumstances of life. God was for them not at all a cold concept, which they then proceeded rationally to analyze, but he was a living, personal force, a, real, a reality infinitely more real than the world around him. So friends, my plea this morning is this. As we strive to love God, make it our goal to engage him as a living, personal God who has revealed himself to us through scripture, and fully in the person of Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. Resolve to know God, to encounter God, to experience his presence, and to know the breadth and the depth of his love for us. The second part of this greatest commandment is to love one another as you love yourself. We hear this theme picked up in the book of 1 John. When John tells us that our love for God is a response to the love that God has demonstrated for us. And this is what Jesus said on the, Mount, on the, on the Sermon on the Mount too, didn't he? He said this, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you only love your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even pagans do that? In other words, you don't need to know God. You don't need to have had a personal encounter with God to love those who are nice to you. Love your enemies as well. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. If all you do is to love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. You don't need to know God to love those who love us. Take it a step further. If we only, only love those who love us, then we have not known God. So friends, this is our, my second plea for us this morning. For us, for Sam, for you, let us be the kind of Jesus followers that demonstrate and give evidence to our love for God through our love for one another. But not just the people who love us, 
who agree with us, who praise us, who say hello to us. But even those people, those people that irk us, that we can't stand, that we have muted on Facebook, that we have blocked, the kind of people that when you think of them, you wonder if they are really Christian, if they know what time we are living in, if they really care about one another. Those people, those people, God calls us to love them. And why? Because once we were not the people of God, and now we are. Because once we were those people, we once were the people who did not know mercy, but now we have received mercy. We can love those people because while at one point we were those people, God has called us, drawn us into his fold and made us the people of God. So let us love God with all of who we are. And having known, tasted, experienced that love, let us in the same way love one another. Amen.